Um, how many of you saw uh, the President of the United States stand up and sing Amazing Grace? I wonder if he would stand up and sing before the throne of God. I wonder if he could stand there and sing those songs, sing those words and those lyrics with conviction that his name is graven on his hand, on his heart. Um, I tell you, the hymns are very, very precious indeed because they really force us to concentrate on the theology of what we're singing when so much worship is sensational. So much worship is, is the, the point of it is uh, to put a show on. The point of it is, is to have a good tune. Now, I'm all about that. Trust me, I've been a worship leader for many, many years, and I have nothing to say against good tunes and, and nice-sounding uh, music. But uh, admittedly, much of the contemporary worship scene has plummeted into something quite shallow in the last several decades. And uh, I am excited that so many young people today are resurrecting the hymns for a new generation. Men like Matthew Smith, men like, uh, 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 men like uh, M. Perry Jones, Indelible Grace, Red Mountain Music, these types of folks, uh, Matt Boswell, resurrecting the significance uh, that the hymns have, and they've had a great significance in the history of the church going all the way back uh, to the first century. After all, it does say uh, in John that as the Lord ap uh, approached uh, the Lord's uh, the, the, the Last Supper there, He sang a hymn with His disciples, and then He broke bread, and then they participated of the Lord's uh, or of the Last Supper there. So I'm encouraged by those hymns. And uh, I am <clears throat> encouraged about those hymns because it forces us to be doctrinal people. <laughs> it forces us to, to, to say, we love your word this much, O Lord. Um, I'm, prepared, I'm priming the pump here for something. I'm letting you know that right now. And that is because we're looking at a passage that many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we really don't do our devotions out of Hebrews chapter 7 looking at Melchizedek <laughs> and looking at the idea of his genealogy not being traced and the specificity of the Levitical priest and what that relationship looks like. We really don't get up in the morning and do a devotion out of Hebrews 7 too often. But brothers and sisters, I assure you that if you understand the content of what's being said here, just like those marvelous hymns, the truths that are contained here in Hebrews chapter 7 are inestimable in terms of their value and in terms of how precious they are. Let me begin by pointing out the fact that as I've been studying Melchizedek now uh, for several weeks and, and looking at... Um, the literature on Melchizedek, what I have found is that throughout the history of antiquity, going all the way back, as far back as we can go, the concept of a priest-king is something that is very lightly peppered in the literature of antiquity, meaning you don't really have a fully developed theology anywhere that unites the concept of priesthood and kingship. So that what you have here in Hebrews chapter 7 is extremely unique. As a matter of fact, 
it is unique even in the context of the New Testament. Realize this, brothers and sisters, that nowhere in the New Testament outside of the book of Hebrews is Jesus explicitly called a priest. Now, of course, there are passages all over. For example, in Romans chapter 8, we are told in verse 34 that Jesus intercedes for us. So without question, the, 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 the role of His priestly duties are magnified and they are there, but what we have in Hebrews is special. It is special because Hebrews uniquely brings together priest and king in one person and he drills down deep into the significance of that. And that's what he's doing in this chapter. He is, he is delving deeply into the theology of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And that's going to be extremely relevant for the rest of the book of Hebrews. We're going to see that. So the connection with Melchizedek really becomes the catalyst so that we understand Jesus being superior to Aaron, superior to Levi, Jesus being superior to the Old Covenant, superior to the Old Covenant sacrifices, on and on and on we can go. But it all begins right here with, with, with establishing Jesus as the high priest. And so, the author here is going to give us three ways in which we see that supremacy, we see that greatness, so that moving forward we understand why he's going the direction that he goes. And so the very first thing that I want to point out, as uh, Hebrews points out here in verse 4, is that the greatness of Melchizedek to Abraham. Now, anytime we're speaking about Melchizedek, we are reflecting on Jesus Christ. Whatever Scripture says about Melchizedek, in some way, in some form or fashion, and to a greater degree, we can say this is relegated to Jesus Christ. So that, for example, as the author has already pointed out in his typological titles that Melchizedek has, Melchizedek is said to be the king of Salem. And we saw what that meant, that he was, the, he was a priest king in an ancient city, which was a primitive way of speaking of Jerusalem. So somewhere in the region of Jerusalem was an ancient priest king that is very mysterious and he's shrouded in mystery because we know nothing of him. We have no genealogy. We have nothing to trace him back to. He is also the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and he's also called the priest of God most high. All of those titles then have ultimate significance for Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate king of peace. He gives us peace with God. He ushers in everlasting peace, as I showed you out of the Old Testament texts about the Messiah. The Messiah is going to usher in a kingdom of righteousness, Isaiah chapter 9. And now we are told that Jesus is priest of the Most High God in a way that is even greater than the greatness of Melchizedek. So here, the author continues to emphasize the greatness of Melchizedek by contrasting him with Abraham and then with Levi. 
And his contrast with Abraham is emphasized as we zero in now on this great patriarch, but we see the greatness of Melchizedek and then, of course, of Jesus Christ by emphasizing Abraham's name, Abraham's title, and Abraham's actions. First, the name. The name Abraham is of such great significance to the people of God as Jesus was asked, you are not greater than our father Abraham. We have our father Abraham. The Jews constantly, that refrain over and over and over, appealing to their Abrahamic descent just to give us a taste of how in the Jewish mind the towering significance and greatness of this man. After all, he was, in the eyes of the people, the progenitor of Israel, meaning he was the father of the Jewish nation. And so for them, everything in redemptive history went back to the person Abraham. As a matter of fact, if you go to Acts chapter 7, or I can read it to you here, Stephen, you remember Stephen before he stoned, Stephen gives a sermon. <laughs> Think of that. <laughs> Talk about going out with a bang. Uh, he gives an elaborate sermon, if you would, on redemptive history and goes all the way back to the time of the patriarchs where he talks about Abraham and the fact that the God of glory appeared to this man Abraham. And out of him came all, the, all of the subsequent patriarchs. It says, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. Abraham, this is, this is Acts 7-8. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve tribes. And then that is important because, as verse 9 goes on to show, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, and yet God was with him. And yet God with, was with him, meaning God's story doesn't end when Joseph is sold into slavery. God is doing something when Joseph is sold into slavery. But it all goes back to the, 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 the father, the patriarch, the patriarch case, as he is called. And so that's the title. The name Abraham is significant enough, but the title, patriarch, they understood that it was the patriarch Abraham, meaning his patriarchal authority as the covenant head of his people. Genesis chapter 12, God makes this astounding gospel promise to one man, Abraham, and that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And in order to ratify or to strengthen the promise, he makes a covenant, Genesis 15. So this too stresses the, um, the prominent place of Abraham in the Jewish mind. It was, on the, it was on the promise given to Abraham that the Jews would then develop all of their eschatology because what we find in the prophets, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, what you find in the minor prophets, in the major prophets, what you find is that all of their prophetic literature goes back to the covenant that God made with the patriarch Abraham. Abraham. And this is why, for example, in Romans chapter 4, he is identified as the one who fathers us all, that is, all of us who are of faith. Romans 4.16 makes that clear. It says, for this reason it is by faith, that is, God's 
saving work in order that it might be accordance with grace. It is not of works, it is of faith. So that the promise, listen to that language, that is Abrahamic language. Anytime you're talking about the promise in the Bible, you know that's a dead giveaway. Abraham is lurking in the shadows. He's behind all of that language. He says that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. That's you and I, brothers and sisters. That's, that's whoever has faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul makes that abundantly clear in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, Not only to those who are of the law, that is the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, comprising Jew and Gentile, watch this, who is the father of us all. Spiritually speaking, we all, owe, we are, we all of us owe our, our religious, if you would, our religious posterity to Abraham because he became the father of us all in a saving way, in a spiritual fashion, through saving faith. But also, and the point of Hebrews here, zeroing in on the actions of Abraham in the fact that he gave to Melchizedek a tenth of the choicest spoils. This becomes critical. See, if we don't have an eye to see, if we don't have ears to hear, if we're not willing to put in the time. I was thinking of this, and God was sort of convicting me of this as I was trying to, to wrap my brain around, around this Melchizedekian passage and thinking, you know, as a pastor, one of my main burdens is, how am I going to make this practical for the people? I mean, you know, I know that, that you guys love exposition and you love exegesis, but part of preaching is application. And if there's no application, the sermon is incomplete. That is a, just a proper homiletical principle. And I thought, but where do I go in this passage that is before me for practical application? And really, it was as if I was convicted to think you need to keep drilling. You need to keep going. How much do you love the Word of God? You remember what happened to Luther during the Reformation? He was astounded when he came to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where it says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And Luther says, I beat importunately upon Paul in that place. What he's saying is that he just, he just kept hammering and hammering away at Romans chapter 1, verse 16, until it yielded forth the explanation of how a person is saved by faith alone. And he got his answer, and boom, out came the Reformation. So, thank goodness Luther beat on that place in Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. But that's what we have to do with all of Scripture until we get our answer. When you get, when you get into a difficult part of Scripture, don't just, don't just breeze over it. Don't just gloss over it. Don't just say, well, that's too hard. I don't really understand that. I'm going to go to the places that I really understand. No, I would challenge you. Keep drilling in that place. Whatever it may be for you and for me and for us right now, it is Melchizedek because Melchizedek becomes a springboard, a springboard to talk about not only the Levitical priesthood, but more importantly, the relationship of Jesus to the Levitical priesthood and why that matters to you. So that my sermon is entitled something like Melchizedek, Jesus, and you. Because it has everything to do with you. 
This has everything to do with you folks. The fact that Melchizedek did not have a traceable genealogy has everything to do for you, with you. I'm going to show you how. <laughs> Just track along. So the greatness, first of all, of Melchizedek is displayed in his relationship to Abraham, but also the second thing is the supremacy of Melchizedek to Levi. To Levi. Now, of course, it's important for the author to connect us to Levi because this is how he's going to pivot moving forward to the rest of the chapters. I mean, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, all of that is important for the, the way the priesthood is set up, the way the sacrifices were offered, the way the old covenant work and function, and the way the new covenant now is being ushered in as that which is greater. Yet everything goes back to this. So it points us to the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. First, the author states two irrefutable facts about Levi and about Melchizedek. So in order to show us the supremacy of Melchizedek to Levi, the author makes a concession that everybody would have understood that was according to the law and that it was proper and fitting for the people of God to adhere to. Look at verse 5, Hebrews 7, 5. It says, and those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office, watch this, have commandment in the law. The, 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 the Greek is literally have command according to the law. Katatan laman or, or, or namas. Katatan namas means according to the law. That which is consistent with the law. That which is in congruence with the law of God. In other words, you have a command on this. This is in God's law, and that's why it is right and fitting for the people, watch, watch what he says here, to collect a tenth from the people. So the Levites collected a tenth from the people, it says, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. And oh, that's very perceptive of the author to throw that in at the end. Although they were descended of Abraham, he's saying, I'm setting you up. <laughs> Keep going, because that's, that's the key right there. So here, we see both the priority of the Levitical tithe given to the priests, the sons of Levi, and that this principle was according to the law. Let me read to you what it says here, Numbers 18.21. It says, To the sons of Levi I have given all the tithe of Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform the service of the tent of meeting. The reason that God is doing this is because if you remember in, in, in the book of Numbers, it stipulates that the Levitical tribe, the, the tribe of Levi, was not to participate in the inheritance of the people. They wouldn't get a portion of the land. They wouldn't get a portion of, of, their, of their inheritance in Canaan. And so, to, and, and so to stipulate that, he says, I'm going to give them not an inheritance of the land promises, but I'm going to give a law, a commandment in the law that it is right and fitting for all the other tribes, all the other brethren to tithe to Levi, to compensate them for their religious, their priestly duties that they officiate at the tent of meeting. Levi would support a greater priesthood. That's the whole point. That's where he's going. So at the same time, it was appropriate for Melchizedek to receive a tithe as well 
But here's the thing. It is not according to law, but rather it is based on the principle of superiority. Look at verses 6 and 7. Not according to law, so there's no antele, that's the word command, and there's no namas, that's the word law, but what is the principle that stipulates that it is good and right and reasonable for Melchizedek now to receive tithes? It is this, verse 7. Well, let me read verse 6. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, that is from the Levites, the, the Levitical priests, he says, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. That becomes very important. But without any dispute, now he knows they all, he knows that they all agree to this. The lesser is blessed by the greater. That is the principle, is a principle of supremacy. And this is a nomic truth. In other words, it's a general principle, universal principle. Everybody acknowledges this. The, the greater is the one who's doing the blessing. And so Abraham in Genesis chapter 14, as mysterious as that account is, because you're reading down the line and it seems like it's reading like history and you're seeing uh, the developments and what's going on and then all of a sudden the, the four Canaanite kings come into Genesis 14 and they, and they take people captive, including uh, Abraham's nephew Lot, and you say, okay, this is reading just like a historical account, no problem, and then out of nowhere you have an individual that shows up on the scene, his name is Melchizedek. And you see Abraham at the pinnacle of his power, having just slaughtered four Canaanite kings, taken all their stuff, and now going before this enigmatic figure and giving him a tenth of the greatest spoils, of the choicest spoils of his, of his uh, plunder, and giving it to Melchizedek. And then the text just goes on. And that's it. There's nothing else to stipulate. Moses, Moses doesn't articulate anything else. That's it. And you're left just kind of going, wow, that was interesting. Okay, let's move on. Genesis 15. Okay, we understand this again because it talks about the covenant and all of that. But you're just left with that. And remember last week what I pointed out was, in fact, when this, was, when this happened, this instance here, it stood there for a thousand years. It just stood there. That, 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 that whole meeting between Abraham and Melchizedek, it just hung there. And then a thousand years later, the king, David, picks up the law of God and he's reading the Pentateuch because he was commanded to. Remember, in Deuteronomy 17, he had to read the law. He had to write a copy, his own copy. And think about doing that. Think about writing out your own copy, uh, let's say the New Testament, and you write it out word for word. There is a Puritan. Oh boy, what's his name? If it comes to me, I'll say it. If not, we'll just call him the Puritan. There was a Puritan in church history who taught himself biblical Greek by how? By copying an entire New Testament Greek, uh, 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 Greek New Testament by hand. He copied it. And by the time he was finished with it, and by the time he was done meditating on it, he had learned the vocabulary. He had learned what verbs were. He had learned what adjectives were. He had learned what nouns. And before he was done, he knew Greek. And in the same way, David is copying the law of God. And he's meditating on that place in Genesis 14 about Melchizedek that no one else has explained. 
The rabbinical tradition shows that the, the Jews were really confused as to who Melchizedek really was. And out comes Psalm 110, where David says about the Messiah, he is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Do you see what David has just done? He has surpassed the Levitical priesthood. This is why you've got you to gotta appreciate the divine authorship of Scripture. Because although, yes, David is the one writing it and penning it down, God is the one, as you know, 2 Timothy chapter 3, He is the one inspiring the Word of God, breathing out, thuanustas, God literally breathing out what these authors wrote down so that David, maybe even he wrote better than he knew that the Messiah would be the priest king that comes prior to the Levites, gives him priority, gives him supremacy, gives him the first place preeminence in redemptive history so that the lesser is blessed by the greater. It prepares us for everything that he's going to talk about in verses 11 to 19. Turn with me to Hebrews, well, if you're there in Hebrews 7, look down to Hebrews 14, uh, 7, 14, so that what you have here the contrast that the author is really setting before us is that the Levitical priests have a command in the law, and Abraham has the promises. And what it shows is that the promises serve, as it were, the purpose of the priesthood of Jesus, not the priesthood of the Levitical priests. Look at what he says in uh, verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And there is clear still, if, and this is clear still, if, if another priest arises according, watch this, to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has come such not on the basis of a law, a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. So what is the point? The point is not genealogy, therefore. The point is that just like Melchizedek kind of had this thing that was mysterious for us to grasp, where his genealogy could not be traced in a similar, but to a greater degree, Jesus' genealogy is not traceable either. After all, his going forth, according to uh, Micah 5, his going forth is from the time of eternity, from everlasting. You want to talk about not being able to trace a person's genealogy. The genealogy of Jesus is utterly untraceable at the end of the day, the end of the day. But all this tells us two things about, uh, three things really of Jesus quickly. First, Jesus' priesthood is not rooted in the tribe of Levi. That's why it is not necessary to find his genealogy going back to Levi. And if you look at the genealogies in the gospel, where do we trace his genealogy? Not to Levi, but as Hebrews just said, to Judah. To Judah. His parents and their ancestry goes back to Judah, not to Levi. And second, second, Jesus' priesthood is not based on the law of the Old Covenant. 
And this will become increasingly important. Look at verse 12 of Hebrews here. It says, For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. So it is not just that God is altering the way of the priesthood. He is also altering the, the application of his law. He's also altering the orientation, the Torah orientation of the people, meaning the way that the people live according to law, according to Torah, according to the commands. All of that is getting ready to undergo a change. After all, what did you eat this week? Anybody eat in here eat bacon? One person, a couple people. Anybody ate shrimp? There's been a change in the law! Or you should have been struck dead for eating that. So obviously, God, redemptively speaking, in Jesus, changes the priesthood, changes the law, because something greater has come. And we'll get to all that. I know I'm probably, there's more questions right now than answers, but we'll get there. Just stay with me. This is how I'm going to keep you coming back. And third, third, we are also given the justification to say that Jesus' priesthood is not subservient to the promise, is not subservient to the promise that was given to Abraham. By God pointing out Melchizedek in Genesis 14, this is so wise. Remember that we just got done saying, you're reading Genesis and out of nowhere comes this guy Melchizedek. What is the point? God always has a reason why he does everything. And by putting him right there in Genesis 14 and not putting him later on after the patriarchs are all born, God puts him specifically where he needs to be in order for him to be the greater one, in order for his, uh, for his priesthood not to be dependent on the Levitical priesthood. God knows exactly what he's doing. He put him in a position so that he could bless Abraham, the one who had the promises. Now, if you, if you look back to Hebrews chapter 6, in essence, God has already spoken of this in this chapter, the idea that the, per, that, that, that the promise and the purpose of God are bound up in the priesthood of Jesus Look what it says in Hebrews 6, 17. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose. There's His purpose. Interposed with an oath, meaning it was guaranteed with an oath. What is the oath? What is the oath? The oath is Psalm 110, where David says, I have sworn you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the promises of God, the purposes of God are ratified, we could say. They are confirmed, guaranteed by the oath that God made concerning his son Jesus, that he would be an everlasting priest. That's amazing to me. So that by two unchangeable things, what are the two unchangeable things? God's promise, God's oath. Those are the two unchangeable things. It makes it impossible for God to lie. He cannot lie. He cannot lie once He has promised. I mean, that's clear. If God promises, He cannot lie. But He adds an oath. 
to say, on top of the promise, I'm going to vow. I'm going to vow something. And so those two things make it unthinkable that God would lie. Lie about what? Lie about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He will not lie about any of that. And it says, we who have taken refuge, we would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. See, the reason why the priesthood of Jesus is so important, the reason why Melchizedek is so important for you is because your hope is, is, is tethered together to your priest. But if your priest does not have a legitimate priesthood, then what happens to your hope? Your hope is undone. But what Hebrews is saying is you have a hope that is sure, sure, sure. Because he gave it to Melchizedek, not to Levi. He gave it to Melchizedek who was greater than Abraham. Greater than Abraham, if you would. The promise that God made to Abraham served the purposes of the priest and vice versa. Okay, let's move on to the next comparison. Not only is Melchizedek greater than Abraham, not only is he superior to Levi, but also, next, the priority of Melchizedek to mortal men. Mortal men. Think of yourself in a relationship to a pastor that you love or that you have loved for many, many, many years. And he's been officiating weddings and he's been presiding over funerals and he comes to your house to pray for you and And he's there interceding, and he's been a faithful teacher and a faithful shepherd. And then later on in life, he dies. And there goes your your pastor. There goes your shepherd. In the same relationship, the people of Israel, they they would get attached to these priests who had officiated at the tent of God for years and years and years. But because they were mortal men, they died. And their ministry to you died with them. And so what, what the death of the Old Testament priests was calling for, shouting for, is the need for an everlasting priest that does not die, does not fail you, does not stop interceding for you. Look at chapter 7, verse 25. That's exactly where he's going. Exactly where he's going. Therefore, after all these arguments... He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives. That's not what you say about mortal men. He always lives to make intercession for them. The intercessory role of Jesus. So therefore, Jesus is a priest. Why is that important? Because He prays for you. Why is that important? Because if Jesus doesn't pray for you, you don't get saved. If Jesus doesn't intercede for you, you don't continue to abide. If Jesus Jesus is not interceding for you at the right hand of the Father, your faith does not remain. Don't you remember what Jesus told Peter? Peter, well, let's, let's remember what Peter told Jesus. I am ready to die for you. I will never deny, never me, not me. I'm ready to go to Jerusalem and die with you, Lord. And Jesus says, yeah, right. 
Jesus says to Peter, I am about to empty you of all self-reliance and all self-dependence. I'm about to empty you of self. How am I going to do it? You're going to deny me three times. And it's going to be terrible denials. It's going to be humiliating to you. Right? I mean, there he is in front, not of a soldier with a sword threatening to cut off his head, but warming himself by a fire as a coward in retreat next to a woman, a girl, a servant, and denying that he even is associated with Jesus of Nazareth to the point that he's willing to cuss and curse that he does not know that man. Yeah, right, you're ready to lay down your life for me. Peter, Peter, he didn't understand. What is important, Peter, is not that you lay down your life for me, but that I lay down my life for you. And Peter would have continued down that same path of apostasy all the way to perdition. But Jesus, as the priest of Peter, says what? I have prayed for you. That your faith would remain. And because your faith is going to remain, because I am interceding for you, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, I will never fail to intercede for you. I will not cease to intercede for you because that's true. Then and only then can you go back and strengthen your brethren. Then and only then will you continue to feed my sheep, tend to my flock, take care of the sheep. It is not on the basis of our self-reliance, brothers and sisters, and that more than anything is what the priesthood of Jesus is going to magnify for us. We are desperately in need of a priest. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. But again, the issue of mortal men. So here we have this incredible statement that's made about Melchizedek. It says that he lives on. You see that in verse 8? It says that it is said of this one that he lives on. Look at verse 8. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. That's the Levitical priest used to receive tithes, and that, according to the commandment, fine. But it says, it says, but in this case, or in that case, talking about Melchizedek, one received them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. He lives on. So his priesthood is perpetual at least as far as the record of Scripture is saying. So here is where, um, you know, although this to me is not even the point of the passage, we have the controversy of who is Melchizedek, right? And I don't know that I'll sell it, settle it for you because it is a great mystery. Who is Melchizedek? Who is this person? How can it be said of a human being, no father, no mother, no beginning of days, no end of life, he lives on if he is not, in fact, Jesus Christ in some pre-incarnate form. That is a view. That's a legitimate view. I personally tend to disagree with that view. And I think that what the, the author is arguing here is on the basis of Scripture, or as far as the biblical record goes, in the sense in which we can argue from silence that he has no genealogy, he lives on in that sense, which then becomes for us 
a typological way of speaking about Melchizedek, meaning that his apparent perpetual life is nothing more than a type, a shadow of the ultimate priest king who indeed, in fact, and to an infinite degree, has perpetual life in himself. One of the reasons that I'm compelled to believe that is, I think, a little bit of a clue here in the text where it says that there is this one of whom it is witnessed. Now, that word there, witnessed, is important because it appears repeatedly in the book of Hebrews, martureo, and martureo only refers to Scripture. The witness is Scripture. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is, as far as Scripture, as far as scripture is concerned, we have no record of his genealogy, so that when he says earlier in the chapter, if you go back to verse 3, when he says that he has no beginning of days, no end of life, I think that's explained by the phrase, without father, without mother, watch this, without genealogy. I think that's the point, especially because when we're talking about the Levitical priesthood, the genealogy is everything. You cannot be ordained to the priesthood if the Jews could not trace your genealogy perfectly back to the tribe of Levi. And so here, as far as Scripture is concerned, we have no no existing genealogy of Melchizedek. Remember, the text says he is made like the Son of God. It does not say he is the Son of God. Even here, it talks about Jesus, that he is, that, that, that he is in the likeness of Melchizedek. Verse 15, that Jesus arose according to the likeness of Melchizedek. He is not equated with Melchizedek. I don't believe, me personally, I don't believe that Jesus existed prior to the incarnation as a historical person residing over a historical city in a historical time and space, and that he had a house, and that he lived somewhere, and people can come and visit and converse with him. I don't think so. To me, I think that misses the whole thrust of the purpose of Melchizedek, this enigmatic figure. And I don't think that David, when David was speaking in Psalm 110, I don't think that David was meaning to identify Genesis 14 is Jesus Christ, but that he speaks of Jesus Christ. But let me bring this all home to us in a very practical and in a very real sense. If Jesus If Jesus, brothers and sisters, what this is saying is that Jesus is worthy of this great glory, right? Look at at the end of verse 9 and 10. It says, And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. What is that referring to? What that's referring to is that Levi was represented in Abraham and shown to be inferior in some way, lesser in some way to the greater Melchizedek. Now, we established that, but what this is all pointing us to is the greatness of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is superior, that his priesthood is preeminent. How many adjectives do I need to use, right? to point out that Jesus is the greatest high priest that has ever been, ever will be, and consequently he happens to be the king of kings. But then there's the issue of our life. 
And do we in our life, as we look at, as we look at how great Jesus is, as, we, as we're confronted of his own greatness, we have to reflect on our own devotion to him and ask in our life, can it be said that I live in such a way where people can see Jesus is great? Where people can say of me, I live in such a way that my life reflects the preeminence of Jesus Christ. First, as a king, does his lordship and does his authority resonate in your life? Or do you have aspects of your life that are not surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Are there areas of your life that you say, Jesus, God, church, all that stuff, that's great over here. But God knows that this over here is mine. That this part belongs to me, right? When it comes to money, when it comes to food, when it comes to modesty, when it comes to different forms of entertainment maybe, leisure, whatever, God respects my sphere of authority too, you know. No, brothers and sisters, are we doing what Jesus commands? Are we obeying the King of kings, the King of righteousness? Does our life reflect that we are under the Lordship of Christ? There's an entire theology called non-Lordship theology. Do you know what it teaches? It came out right here, right in our backyard here, Dallas Theological Seminary, DTS, going all the way back to the origins of dispensationalism, it taught that a person could have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. And they took all the verses in the Bible that talk about you must have faith, and that faith is all that you need to be saved. The stuff about submitting to the Lord, obeying the Lord, right, all of that walking in holiness, that comes later. And as a matter of fact, some teachers have even taught that a person can live in total disobedience to the Word of God, but as long as they say they believe in Jesus, they are saved, which, of course, Scripture would say no. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. It is a contradiction in terms to say that you have some interest in the King, Jesus, and then not obey what He says. And so I challenge us in that way. Are we obedient from the heart? Romans chapter 6, verse 17. As we look back at our life, can we say our life reflects a pattern of obedience that suggests Jesus Christ is my King. He is my Lord. He is the authority over my life. But conversely, let me turn the tables on us. Do we also live our lives that display that Jesus is our priest? And you say, oh, well, that's easy. We need a priest, a sympathetic high priest. Really? Have you ever tried to pull yourself up by your own moral bootstraps? Have you ever tried to muster the faith, right? Maybe after a sin, a failure, and you think, oh, now I'm going to really pray. Now I'm going to really fellowship in the church. Now I'm going to really get involved. Now I'm going to really study the Word of God, right? What is that other than just a token that we don't understand justification, that we don't understand that our cleansing, that we don't understand that our right standing before Almighty God is not contingent upon us, 
but it is solely based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In other words, do we recognize that in it of ourselves, we are devoid of the righteousness that we need. We need the righteousness of our faithful high priest who became a sacrifice for us. So in both ways, do we slip? Do we slip into self self-adequacy? Do we, do we slip into self-righteousness because we fail to recognize the priestly duties of Jesus, that He is our intercessor, that He is our, our, our representative before God, that He makes sacrifice for us, that He atones for our sin, that He justifies us? And at the same time, are we living lives that are antinomian, which means you don't respect the rule of the king. You don't respect the authority of the king. You're living a lawless life. Many people are in that place. But above everything, we have to ask ourselves, all of this language in Hebrews that speaks to the preeminence of Christ in a very practical, simple fashion, is it reflected in my life? The people know you to be a person who is in touch with the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. I leave you with that challenge because that is the challenge that Hebrews is going to present to the people. Jesus is enough, and I don't need anything outside of Him. So we don't go to other sacrifices. We don't go to other priests. We don't need to go to, if you're Catholic, you don't go to a priest, confess your sins. Matter of fact, next time you see a priest, tell him to confess his sins to you. Because according to the Bible, you're a priest too. Now what? In two confessional booths, dueling confessional booths. No, we only need one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we continue to go through Hebrews, I pray that you would illuminate our heart and our mind to the reality, the greatness of Jesus, and just how much we need his cleansing as our priest, how much we need his continual intercession for our life. And Lord, knowing that we have it, help us walk with a newfound sense of boldness, knowing that we are safe in the everlasting hands of our mediator, Jesus Christ. And at the same time, Lord, help us to, to search our hearts and to evaluate our lives and to ask, Lord, what area of my life is not surrendered to the authority of our King? of our Lord, because every aspect of our life should be. And so, Lord, use this word to convict us, to grow us, and to mature us, to live a life of principled obedience to your will and to your word. Lord, we love you. Oh, Father, we thank you for Jesus, our high priest. He is so faithful to us. Lord, we confess that we are often faithless to him but He remains ever faithful to us. So help us to live our lives in utter worship, a worship at the, at the feet of our priest king who now sits at the right hand of the Father, who now sits at the right hand of the power on high, the majesty on high, at the throne of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.